Welcome to Aquafarm Pod. I'm your host, John Bazaar, and we've had a lot happen in the last week in oncology pharmacy, uh, in the last couple weeks, so we have some updates to get to. Before I do that, though, since last week we talked about uh, DaVita's original MOP paper, I did want to say there's uh, in this week's issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, there is an ABVD versus brintuximab and AVD combination, so not the bleomycin. And there's an editorial written by DaVita kind of summarizing the history of Hodgkin's uh, and there's a really good section there about monitoring for uh, pulmonary fibrosis and pulmonary dysfunction with bleomycin that I think is, is worth checking out. So let's just get right into it. We've got a new drug approved. Um, it's a radiopharmaceutical. I'll save that one for the end just to, to keep you guys hanging on. Uh, so first we'll talk about denosumab's approval for multiple myeloma to prevent skeletal-related events. This was January 5th. And denosumab had previously been approved for solid tumors to prevent skeletal events. So why, if you know, bisphosphonates are used for both, why were, why was denosumab not approved for myeloma? And this all goes back to a JCO study from 2011 by Henry D.H. et al. that was comparing denosumab versus zoledronic acid in various solid tumors, not breast, not prostate cancer. They had their own study. So various solid tumors and myeloma. In an ad hoc analysis that would then be hypothesis generating, uh, showed that there was inferior overall survival for the, in the denosumab arm in patients with myeloma. So that caused some pause to using denosumab in myeloma patients. And, and there was some concern when denosumab first came out because of rank ligands role in the immune system that maybe there'd be more infections. And that hasn't been shown to be the case. That's been pretty well studied. So along comes the 482 study, which was cleverly named randomized double-blind uh, multi-centered study uh, randomizing more than 1,700 patients with newly diagnosed myeloma to either denosumab 120 sub-Q, Q4, or zoledronic acid 4 milligrams IV Q4 along with either a sub-Q or IV placebo. Primary endpoint was non-inferiority for skeletal-related events, and skeletal-related events were defined as either a pathologic fracture the need for radiation to the bone, or spinal cord compression. Spinal cord compression is not one that you always see included as a skeletal-related event. Sometimes you'll see hypercalcemia as a skeletal-related event, but certainly pathologic fracture and radiation to the bone are common. So primary endpoint, skeletal-related events, 43.8% uh, SREs in denosumab arm, a little bit more, 44.6% in the zoledronic acid arm. Hazard ratio for non-inferiority, 0.98. Confidence interval, 0.85 to 1.14. So pretty wide confidence interval there. Uh, I'm not actually sure what the non-inferiority margin was, but it was greater than 15%, which is pretty wide for a non-inferiority margin. P-value for non-inferiority, 0.01. Not enough to show superiority. Although the press release from the company talks about this 10-month improvement in progression-free survival, uh, which I think is hype. Uh, survival similar. Uh, you do see a little bit more osteonecrosis of the jaw uh, with denosumab, as we know. In this study, 4.1% with denosumab versus 2.8% with zoledronic acid. So what this showed is, yes, it's effective at preventing skeletal events, and there's no concern about that overall survival inferiority that was seen in an earlier study. Now, so why was that seen in that earlier study? Well, it was only it was less than 200 patients, only 180. Uh, that wasn't designed in myeloma. There are a lot of differences in how myeloma can be treated uh, with who gets transplant, who gets uh, which, 
anti-angiogenesis agents like lenalidomide and which proteasome inhibitors and did they get maintenance after uh, their transplant. So a lot of things could have affected the myeloma survival that had nothing to do with the nosumab in that study. Not to mention it was fewer than 200 patients. This is, is 10 times that, uh, almost exactly 1,700 patients. So as we see with more patients, we see there's not a survival concern with denosumab myeloma. Some experts have been saying that and using that that way for years. Uh, one thing I'll point out, exclusion criteria for this study included patients with a creatinine clearance less than 30. And if you, if you read um, experts talking about this approval, they'll say it's not inferior to zoledronic acid. It's an option, especially in those patients who you're worried about nephrotoxicity. Maybe those patients have bad kidneys. Well, the patients with a creatinine clearance less than 30 were not, ex were not included in this study, so we really don't have the evidence to say that. So, denosumab, now an option to prevent SRE in myeloma patients. The next approval, this was a week later, January 12th, not approval, an update, to afatinib. So, afatinib was originally approved back in 2013 for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with activating EGFR mutations being deletion of exon 19 or an exon 21 mutation, specifically the L858R mutation, which means at the EGFR amino acid number 858, a leucine has been substituted with arginine. It causes constitutive activation of EGFR. Both of those did. Um, so this expands the approval of afatinib to other EGFR mutations. There are three of them. Uh, S78768I, which are a lot that may have some activity against, L861Q, with which uh, erlotinib and gefitinib do have activity, and then G719X. The X doesn't stand for amino acid, but there's a, a G719A, a G719C, and a G719S. So X stands for all those, apparently, um, or multiple uh, amino acids. So afatinib has activity in that. The approval is based on these patients having a durable response and when I say these patients, I mean an N of 32. So 32 patients spread across three trials, the Lux Lung 2, the Lux Lung 3, and the Lux Lung 6. So 32 mutations that have these other mutations now are candidates for fatnib uh, if they have those, those EGFR mutations, all right? So kind of a lot of regulatory work for, based on a small number of patients spread across three studies, but certainly if you have patients that have those Mutations of fatinib is going to be an option for them. The next update we'll talk about, also on January 12th, is uh, a laparib for patients with deleterious or suspected uh, BRCA germline mutations for breast cancer. And this is the first drug approved specifically for BRCA mutated breast cancer. This is based on the results of the Olympiad study, which was published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017 by, by Robson and colleagues. So you had 300 patients randomized two to one to either elaparib, so about 200 in the elaparib group, or physician's choice of chemo being capecitabine, aribulin, and venorobine. And just those options give you an idea of how far down the treatment pathway these patients were. Uh, they were about 50% triple negative, 50% hormone positive, and HER2 negative. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, median progression-free survival seven months with Alaparib versus 4.2 with physician's choice chemo, uh, yielding a hazard ratio of 0.58. And that is statistically significant. Now, if you look at the subgroup analysis, you'll see the hazard ratio in the triple negative cohort is 0.43 with a confidence interval of 0.29 to 0.63. So it seems Alaparib is more effective 
as a PARP inhibitor in the triple negative subgroup, which makes sense based on what we know about PARP inhibitors as well as, as, as BRCA mutations. So it seems that this drug, now FDA approved, probably makes a little bit more sense uh, in the triple negative population. Uh, just to, in case you're not aware, Alaparib was already approved for a, a very similar um, um, indication for ovarian cancer, this suspected uh, deleterious BRCA and germline mutations based on an FDA approved test. This brings us to today, January 6th, and uh, the approval of lutetium. I think that's how you say that. Or lutetium? Lutetium uh, 177 dotate, or dotatate. Um, lutetium 177 is how I'll say it. Lutetium is the 71st element on the periodic table. It is both a beta and a gamma emitter. So this is a, a radiopharmaceutical. It's a somatostatin analog and it's approved for somatostatin receptor positive gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, the foregut, midgut, or hindgut in, in adults. Uh, so this is a, a radiopharmaceutical. Uh, it binds to somatostatin receptors, gets internalized, and then releases that radiation uh, inside that cell. And since uh, neuroendocrine tumors have a lot of somatostatin receptors, you get more radiation in the tumor. Some interesting things about this as a radiation emitter, you know, you worry about these radiopharmaceuticals and myelosuppression. That is something that we'll talk about uh, going forward. The lutetium is excreted renally, so there was some nephrotoxicity. That can be prevented by giving these patients uh, an IV amino acid solution like 30 minutes before the dose, and what that does is prevent the reabsorption of lutetium back into the kidney cells, and that seems to be what caused the um, the nephrotoxicity, and they, they required uh, antiemetics to be given 30 minutes before that IV amino acid solution. It's got about a six to seven day half-life, uh, although the package insert says that 99% of the radiation is, is eliminated via the urine uh, in 14 days and all of it within a month. So one counseling point to patients would maybe to use a dedicated uh, toilet during uh, at their house while they're uh, in the month after this. The, the dosing here is every eight weeks times four doses, and because it binds to somatostatin receptors, these patients are already going to be on octreotide, so they have to stop any somatostatin analog that's long-acting four weeks prior to treatment. Then they're going to get their IV amino acid solution, their antimedic, then they're going to get the lutetium, 177. Then four to 24 hours later, they can start back on octreotide for symptomatic purposes um, because they're still going to want to, to use that octreotide. Um, the approval for this is based on the Netter 1 study, uh, which was uh, actually published uh, in January of 2017, so about a year ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. So there were about 115 patients randomized to each arm, either lutetium-177 uh, plus octreotide after the dose, or to octreotide LAR. The uh, primary endpoint is progression-free survival. The hazard ratio for progression-free survival was 0.21. 95% composite rule, 0.13 to 0.33. So a pretty impactful difference in progression-free survival. It's a little bit clearer if you look at the 20-month progression-free survival. 65% versus 10.8%. Another way to look at that is after randomization, 20 months later, 35% of patients on the lutetian arm had progressed or died. In the octreotide arm, 89% had progressed 
or died. So a pretty sizable improvement in, in slowing the progression of disease in this lutetium arm. And again, they're getting lutetium and they're also getting octreotide later um, as well. So as soon as they finished their four doses of lutetium, they were supposed to go back on octreotide. And again, they got octreotide in between cycles as well for symptomatic relief. So appears to be very effective for, for these, uh, these gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. It has some toxicity concerns. 59% uh, of patients had no some nausea compared to 12% with just octreotide. Vomiting, 47% versus 10%. Diarrhea, 29 versus 19%. Peripheral edema, 14 versus 7%. Looking at uh, hematologic parameters, 25% of patients with lutetiumar had some thrombocy thrombocytopenia, although only 2% was grade 3 or 4. Um, some anemia as well, 10% leukopenia, although only 1% grade 3 or worse, 5% neutropenia, although only 1% grade 3 or worse, and 11% of patients had alopecia. So a drug that has some, appears to be manageable toxicity, and uh, the, the package insert is really interesting for this. Uh, if you're interested in radiopharmaceuticals, you'll love reading about this drug. One that, at least in our practice, we don't dispense radiopharmaceuticals. We don't have a radio or a nuclear pharmacy on site. Um, and, and the one in our area, you, um, we don't interact with a whole lot. Um, so I don't, I don't encounter these a whole lot, but I will encounter patients who I know have received this, and sometimes we will refer patients like with prostate cancer for radium-223. So it's useful to know the things about the half-life, the side effects to expect as that can impact the care uh, as you are involved with it. Well, I hope you've had a happy Friday. I know I have, and I'm looking forward to the weekend. So. Uh, feel free to, to follow me on Twitter at FarmDetanib. Follow the show at OncoFarmPod. Uh, find the rate and review section on the iTunes. Um, give us some ratings. There are enough ratings now that people can see the ratings for this, so keep rating. Um, and then also drop some reviews. Let us know what you think about this podcast. Tell us what you like and everything. Um, and spread the word so more people can listen. Thank you and have a, you know, have a great Friday. Thank you.